This is the Fun Logic Science Show on Blue Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. My name's Broderick and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning on the radio. And we're ready for an hour of science, 60 minutes of uh, the latest that's been happening in the world. And uh, joining me to help talk about it today is uh, Emma. Welcome back, Emma. Hi, Brad. It's fantastic to have you here. You've had a very sciencey week this week. I have indeed. I've actually launched a new uh, blog, so that's all about science and it's lots of fun. Awesome, awesome. And uh, making her Fuzzy Logic debut uh, this morning is Jen. Welcome along, Jen. Morning, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, no worries. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio this morning. And um, look, we're going to have a, a lot of fun. We've got a lot to discuss today. We're going to be looking at uh, how we can make meat in different ways and the environment around us and how that affects people. And also interviewing uh, Dr. Stephen Redmond later on about some of the work he's done. But to kick us off today, as we usually do, is uh, this day in science, today being September 11, on this day in science back in 1816, we had the birth of Carl Zeiss. Now, you might remember that name. He's a German industrialist who gained a worldwide reputation as a manufacturer of fine optical instruments. After qualifying in medicine, he became... He began the manufacture of optical instruments, which he knew would be in increasing demand as, a science, as science and medicine advanced. He spent seven years in the workshops of various European instrument makers before he founded his own optical factory. Now, he quickly established a reputation for products of the highest quality, and this reputation continues in Zeiss lenses today, which are all about the place. What else happened on this day, Em? Well, in 1947, we had the first radioactive isotopes transported from the US and delivered right here to Canberra. And they were used in Australia's X-ray and medical laboratories. So Oak Ridge National Lab in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, produced the isotopes as a byproduct of the chain reaction um, in a uranium pile. And they travelled by aeroplane via San Francisco, California, right here to Canberra. And also, on this day in 1831, one of my favourite bearded men, Charles Darwin, and his lesser-known captain, Robert Fitzroy, travelled from London to Plymouth to inspect the ship named the Beagle. This was Darwin's first sighting of that ship, and that is the famous ship on which he did his voyage of discovery, leading to his famous theory of evolution. Yes, and that was uh, quite contested by the church at the time. And something else that was contested uh, back even further was Galileo's uh, theory about the Earth revolving around the sun rather than the sun revolving around the Earth. And on this day in 1822, it was announced by the College of Cardinals that henceforth the printing and publication of works treating of the motion of the Earth and the stability of the sun in accordance with the opinion of modern astronomers is permitted. This translated basically means that the church admitted that the sun, uh, the earth, sorry, revolves around the sun. We better get that right. Uh, when Pope Pius VII ratified the Cardinal's decree, the Catholic Church finally officially accepted the Copernican principle that on the 22nd of June 1633, sorry, almost 200 years prior, Italian scientist Galileo had been imprisoned for championing. 
It was not until 1835, however, that the Vatican removed Galileo's dialogue concerning the two chief world systems from its list of banned books. And then finally, on the 31st of October in 1992, the Catholic Church formally admitted that Galileo had been correct. So it took a while, but uh, we got there and Galileo uh, uh, had his time. And also on this day in 1946, now I'm not sure how the police today would feel about this, but the first ever mobile long-distance car-to-car telephone conversation took place all the way back in 1946. That was in America, and the call was between Houston, Texas, and uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Thankfully, I haven't got the names of the people involved because they might get in trouble these days. Yeah, I can't imagine it was one of those um, wireless-style headset-type things. It was probably some giant brick (laughs) It was a long time ago. I'm surprised that that could happen that far back. Yeah, well, I mean, that's over 50 years ago now. Yeah. It was 60. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought the phones (laughs) that my mum had in 1996 was a a brick phone. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So made a huge jump since then. But it's amazing that it's been going on for so long. Hmm. Now, to, to start with this morning, I actually wanted to talk, before we throw to a song, I wanted to talk about songs um, today because we've got uh, something very interesting at the moment called Autotune. Um, now, I don't know if you guys have heard of Autotune before. I've heard uh, accusations made against Britney Spears about Autotune, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't heard about it, Bron. Yeah, it's, well, it's basically, I mean, I'm not surprised that you've heard about Britney Spears using it, Jen, because it is used to disguise... Um, off-key inaccuracies and mistakes that singers make. You know, it's basically fine-tuning their voice um, to the tune that they're supposed to be singing in, even when they're not um, singing in it at all. You know, they can um, get it to near a semitone, which is hugely accurate. Um, I think that the biggest effect that this has been seen with is um, Cher, you remember her song, oh, yes. you know, Do you believe in life? Yeah, that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do it, but actually, Em, I'm going to get you to give it a go today. Ooh, okay. And what I've got on my um, phone here is an app that um, does a bit of auto-tune. So I've given you some little lyrics there um, about the Fuzzy Logic Science yeah, Show. I think this is going to, you know, win an aria for sure. All right, well, just hold on a sec. I'm going to lean over and we're going to record this. Hold on. Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Every Sunday at 11.30, broadcasting on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. Awesome work there, Anne. Now, my phone's just calculating, and it's going to play... Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Every Sunday at 11.30, broadcasting on 98.3 FM. Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Every Sunday at 11.30... Now that's not bad at all, Em. Quite <laughs> a hidden pop star in the room, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even get into my high school choir, but with the help of Autotune, I'm uh, on my way to starting. Exactly. It's so easy to do. I mean, it's it's a bit ridiculous, but it seems like you know almost pretty simple stuff. You know, it's put it in tune, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And there's actually a lot of science behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's come up with a group called uh, Antares Audio Technologies, and it uses a phase vocoder to correct pitch in vocal and instrumental performances. Now, a phase vocoder is an encoder that can modify both the frequency and the time of the audio signals by using their phase information. 
So let's translate that once more. <laughs> and we're going to go... So it can ch- modify the frequency of the audio signals. So it basically can make it higher or lower um, by changing the frequency of those signals. And it can shift the time on them as well. And it uses all the information that's encoded within the uh, the sound waves there to try and um, recreate it in a different way. And it actually uses um, techniques like Fourier transform, which scientists use in a lot of their data to look at their graphs and that sort of thing to interpret them. Yeah. So it's quite amazing that they can then use this um, for songs. And the guy who developed it, uh, Dr Andy Hildebrand, he was actually a research scientist in the geophysical industry um, where he developed software to interpret seismic signals. Um, he ended up going back to study music in 1989 um, and uh, here he found a problem. At, at this point in time, it was with digital music looping. So using his knowledge of uh, interpreting signals and computers and all that sort of thing, he managed to create his own um, digital uh, uh, plug-in to solve this looping problem and then from here he developed more and more software and eventually came up with auto-tune now yeah it's pretty impressive stuff i love how that you know people's hobbies and their passion for science can come together and really sort of drive these new technologies well that's right i mean it's amazing application of it i mean probably not the most uh world-changing world-saving application no no but (laughs) i don't know you know they say music can change the world ah yes indeed (laughs) well it's it's really interesting the way that this technology has been put to use now um because uh people have started using it's become more accessible it hasn't just become a recording industry thing and so people have started doing stuff like auto-tuning the news is one of the big ones out there on YouTube, they take people just talking on the news and they auto-tune it and turn it into songs. It's pretty impressive. Make the news appealing to the new generation. Well, that's right. I mean, it's, it's great, you know, and you get all these crazy songs out there. Um, but a group called Melody Sheep has done something that's probably a bit more relevant to Fuzzy Logic in that they've created uh, their own version of the Symphony of Science. Now, this uses the voices of famous scientists such as Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan, and even Stephen Hawking um, from a TV show of the same name, Symphony of science and they've turned their scientific facts into songs which um i think is pretty amazing and so today for our first track we're actually going to listen to one of these songs um this is from uh, melody sheep symphony of science this song's called the quantum world and i know richard dawkins is in here but the uh intro at the start is uh, a very nice mr morgan freeman so we'll have a listen to this song from the symphony of science this is the quantum world What are we really made of? Dig deep inside the atom and you'll find tiny particles held together by invisible forces. Everything is made up of tiny packets of energy born in cosmic furnaces. The atoms that we're made of have negatively charged electrons whirling around a big bulky nucleus. The quantum theory offers a very different explanation of our world. The universe is made of 12 particles of matter, four forces of nature. The universe is made of 12 particles of matter, four forces of nature. That's a wonderful and significant story. Suppose that little things behave very differently than anything big. Nothing's really as it seems. It's so wonderfully different than anything big. The world is a dynamic mess. 
Symphony of Science there with their song uh, Quantum World some amazing stuff there using the auto-tune <laughs> phase vocoders uh, the time is 11.48 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic Community Radio on uh, 98.3 2XXFM and uh, this morning we have on the phone Dr Stephen Redman from the University of New South Wales uh, and he's going to do an interview with us about some interesting technology he's involved in. Good morning, Stephen. Morning, Jan. How are you? Good. Thanks for being on the show with us this morning. Um, I'm just uh, interested in um, some research you've been doing on some technology and some techniques to predict the likelihood of elderly people experiencing a fall in the near future. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that technology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we've done is a preliminary study, so just a, a small study with a group of about 70, or it's actually 68 older people, and we're trying to predict their likelihood of falling. And what we've done is we've put a, a small accelerometer, which is a motion sensor, onto their, their waist. They'll clip this little pager-sized device onto their belt, and they'll do some tests for us. So they'll a test which will sort of correlate with their ability to just walk around and, and get on with their normal life. So they'll, they'll walk for us, they'll stand up and sit down for us, they'll do some stepping tests. And we look at the signals. Um, so I, I was interested, and I was listening to the show just beforehand, you were talking about Fourier transforms. We use Fourier transforms and to, to pull apart the signal and look at the, the frequencies in the signal and to actually try and use that information to predict how, un, or well, to see how unstable somebody is in doing these tasks and to use that 
information to predict their likelihood of falling in the near future. Well, when I say near future, I mean on a, a scale of maybe several months to a year. Yeah, so this sort of technology can, can look ahead at their likelihood of, of having... Yeah, a, that's, that's the idea. Yeah. So it's, it's still early, early stages, but we've shown that there is a relationship. There's definitely a relationship between using these, uh, looking at these signals from how they move around and that, and that it does relate to their, their stability and their likelihood of falling. Well, sounds good, because I know, you know, we've got a, an ageing population and the cost of, uh, of, of people falling and, and the injuries resulting from that and, and to people's independence is very high, so anything we can do to, to reduce the likelihood yeah, yeah, of that is yeah. good for everyone. Yeah, absolutely, and um, since my involvement with the, the Fresh Science uh, media program that this story was tied to, I've been receiving emails from people all over Australia, Western Australia, South Australia, and they, they're very interested, and it's usually people who are suffering from falls. So I had an email only yesterday from a gentleman in his mid-80s just saying, when is your technology going to be available? Will this help me? So it, it spurs us on. I mean, we're not there quite yet. It's not going to be on the market um, for maybe another few years, but um, it does drive us forward to try and help what is an ageing population. There's definitely um, something to keep you going, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so obviously, uh, at the moment, in hospitals and in, in aging care centres and things, there are these sort of um, assessments, I guess, risk fall assessments done by physiotherapists and doctors and other people uh, to yeah. assess people's likelihood of falling. How is this technology um, going to be an improvement on on that current system? Yeah. So that, that's right. I mean, this prevention is the key here. So rather than, um, I mean, I think it costs around a billion dollars a year as an estimate to treat direct cost of the cost of, of treating people in hospitals for falling and associated costs, so, you know, sons and daughters taking time off work and, and all this kind of stuff. So, it, you know, prevention is the key. If we can actually try and prevent it, this from happening, we reduce those costs. And, yeah, they use these clinical measures of, of falls risk. So they, they're, they're a little bit obtrusive and they are effective, but a bit obtrusive in that they have to go to the specialised clinic um, they'll have to uh, do things like stand on a phone and have a researcher stand beside them and see what their disability is like. So we're trying to make a, a more compact version of this test, um, which is maybe a little bit cheaper and a bit easier to use and, and a bit less subjective. So there, there is some subjective interpretation of, of the clinical tests that are out there at the moment. Um, so it's sort of you've got a, a human researcher standing there sort of interpreting their performance of these tests. So we're trying to remove that, that subjectivity and make it a bit more objective and, and, uh, and, and level across all hospitals, all clinics that are using this assessment. And just to, to finish off and maybe look to the future a little bit, um, the hope or, or sort of our, our pipe dream, long-term dream, is to really make this uh, unsupervised so it's not something that needs to be done in a clinic or in a hospital that people can actually wear this device at home or, or heaven forbid, in the very distant future, it, it might be an implantable device where, uh, you know, when you reach a certain age, if you're a bit worried about your stability, you'll have uh, an implanted motion sensor to put into your hip, uh, which might be a very small microscopic device, and that will monitor you if you actually fall or will tell you if you're, you're looking likely to fall um, in your future. Yeah, it would be cool if they could um, incorporate into sort of a, yeah, like a live reporting data system, like a personal yeah. alarm system style situation. That's right. I mean, I mean, there are personal alarms. So, so often, to, to sort of tie back into the point I was making about emails that I receive, I usually respond and say, look, you know, we're not quite there yet, but we're working on it. But if you if you are worried about falling, there are fall alarms on the market. So Philips, uh, you, you probably have heard, you know, Philips, a huge electronic company from Holland. Yes. They make and sell um, personal alarms that have automated fall detection. And that's not really what we're about. I mean, we do some research in that area trying to detect the fall. The actual impact when they hit the floor and you see a big spike in the motion center, 
to send the ambulance or call the daughter or whatever it might be. But we're trying to add on to that to 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 make to give it that preventative um, aspect where rather than while also detecting the fall, if it should happen, that we're also keeping an eye on them over what could be years and saying that, look, you know, you seem to be walking slower these days, you're a little bit more steady, we've seen some trips and stumbles, and maybe it's time for you to go and, and enroll yourself in some sort of, you know, do some yoga, go to physiotherapy. I mean, there are, there are programs, preventative programs all around Australia which, which specifically target people who are at risk of falling and trying to strengthen their, their, their lower limbs and give them a, a, a better yeah. balance. Well, I guess that, uh, that prevention uh, is, is always better than cure and the peace of mind for everybody, um, of course. Um, can you see this method being expanded to include other people who are at risk of falling, people with cerebral palsy or who've had a stroke or other people at risk of falling other than yeah, other people? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We, we have begun the early stages of, of um, working with Parkinson's, people with Parkinson's just to try and monitor the uh, severity of, this, of the Parkinson's disease. So um, but one aspect is that we're these people fall, they're young and healthy often, except for they have Parkinson's, and they fall a lot. So it is a way to, to validate the falls algorithm, detection algorithms that we have, but it's, it can also be used as a, a measure of the disease severity, an objective measure of the disease severity in these people. And another target area would be, it is still in the elderly population, but it is the people with dementia, um, who are not just in the general population of being a little bit older and having weaker muscle strength that they um, they tend to suffer for whatever reason a lot more falls than, than usual. And so, yeah, that's a good idea. And, and that's something that we're start, starting to work towards, but I, I think we're in such an early phase at the moment that we're just focusing on the big problem, which is falls in the general elderly population. Yes, and I guess if you can if you can work the technology uh, with them, it shouldn't be t- hopefully too much of a stretch uh, to look at other people that it can help with. So. For a minute, back to the device itself. So you said it's accelerometer. So is that does that mean it just it sort of measures uh, movement and and direction of movement? Um, yeah, an accelerometer measure is uh, probably given away by the name acceleration, and, and the way it does it is what, some of them, they vary, but the gist of it is that there's a, what's called a microelectromechanical machine, it's a tiny little microchip-sized device, and in there, if you got a microscope and looked at it, you would see something that looks similar to a, a weight, a small mass. Uh, balancing on a spring, on, on a, actually three springs in three different directions. And so we can actually detect uh, acceleration due to gravity, so it can tell the orientation. You might have seen this, if you have an iPhone and you flip the screen around, that has an accelerometer inside, which, which figures out which way the ground is by, by sensing gravity. So it's a very same, same technology, and, and that's it. So it just measures whenever there's a force, there's a corresponding acceleration, that's when a Newton draws, and and we can tell what acceleration they're sensing. It's a bit hard to pick speed and position because we have to, um, I'm not going to get too mathematical, but we have to integrate the signal. So we have to, um, so, you know, velocity is the derivative of, of uh, position with respect to time, it's similar with acceleration to velocity. So there's a bit of mathematics involved. You can work all the way back to position and speed, and it's not very reliable because there are errors in the acceleration. Yeah. It's a really, really cool technology. It's absolutely, you know, it's on the, the, the microchips, scale size of things and, and we're also going to add to this you can buy gyroscopes and most of, to be honest most of the stuff is, is available on the internet if you're a hobby, electronic hobbyist you can get on the internet go to a, like a website like Sparkfund and order this stuff from the states that will arrive in the post two days later you can diddle around with it and um, you can get gyroscopes which measure rate of rotation so we're probably going to incorporate that into our future devices you can buy air pressure sensors that can tell when people have stood up or sat down again because there's a, a small a very very small change in air pressure 
from the floor to, to waist to standing height. So some pretty cool stuff and we squeeze it all into a little box, put a battery on it and a bit of smarts and away you go. Yeah, it's a fair bit of uh, technology to whack into a tiny little little page of yeah, size it's a uh, challenge. device. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are those, when you're looking at the, the patterns that you get from people who uh, you've been doing these assessments on, um, are you doing those calculations just sort of by looking at it yourself subjectively or is there are there mathematical systems in a computer that, that sort of calculate those risks for you? Yeah, we, we normally use um, some machine. I don't you might have heard this buzzword, but machine learning where we give it a set of targets and we give so we have targets which has the way we do it is we use a clinical, the clinical falls risk score and we try and figure if, if we can make our test reproduce what the clinical test is doing then we must be doing something correct so that's the target the input is the signals the acceleration signals and there's a few steps where we help it along the way so we do things like Fourier transforms and uh, we look at the energy and the signals uh, along the X, Y, Z up, down you know left, right back, forward uh, we try and extract some features that we think will be related and then we, we have some machine learning which just means we try and try and build a model which learns how to map those uh, features which we think might be related to risk of falling to the actual clinical score. Uh, it's all a bit black box and there's some you know algorithms and mathematics to, to allow us to automatically learn. Um, yeah. It's not quite as sophisticated as what, the kind of learning you imagine a human does but it's, it's in the same direction. You give it a target, you give it some input and you you're allowed to learn what it is about the input that map it towards the target. So, cool. Um, so yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. It's not. It's not just done. Um, yeah, by hand, but you know. Something. Well, from but, what I know, understand, we, uh, the computer's learning pretty well because there's 99% agreement between uh, what the computer's coming up with and the the the, the falls assessments yeah, done by so, people. Yep, that's that's what we have at the moment. And but but again, this is you know. There might be something about the clinical test itself which doesn't, still doesn't quite predict falls accurately. So we need to do, and we're about to launch um, perspective, what we call it, rather than catching people at the end of a period and asking them as many times they fall, we catch them at the beginning, we assess them at the beginning, and then we, we come up with our predictions, and then we see how well our predictions actually work. So we follow them around by phone, and we make, make them fill out diaries, uh, falls diaries for the coming year or two years, and then we, we actually see, did we predict that they would have fallen? Yeah, so, yeah, know, so you're looking get, at get out and do this with more people and actually prove to ourselves that it really, really does what, what it promises to do. Yeah, so you can uh, you can go back and say, oh yeah, you know, this is actually working as as well as we'd hoped. Well, sounds like you've got a lot of uh, a lot of research to go, but you're definitely doing well so far. So yeah, where's the where's where do you see yourselves going from here with this research? Yeah, so I mean, I won't repeat myself, but yeah, we're going to do some some extra trials. Um, I really to, to go back to the implantables. I really think that the future in this area is going to be an implantable. Um, there is a big push, um, and another area of research that we do is in chronic disease uh, treatment. So all, all of this stuff falls under the general umbrella of what we call telehealth, um, which is delivery of, of moving primary healthcare into the home. So this is one aspect where we're looking at falls, but there's also people who have chronic disease, lung disease, which are one of the biggest burdens on the health healthcare system, much much more than falls. Um, by, by a long way. Um, so I, I think what's going to happen is this is all going to merge together where general well-being in the home will be monitored and um, perhaps with implantables in the body. Yes, yeah, so um, I was uh, reading an article about uh, telehealth and the use of uh, Medicare funding now in telehealth issues in terms of uh, you know specialist consultations over the internet and that. So I'd say you're, yeah. you're in a winning position. That's right. I, I, it's nice to see it actually because it, for a long time telehealth, it's it, it had a lot of promise but it's sort of been stumped. I don't want to go into economics and politics too much, but it, it hasn't really been there, and the biggest roadblock has been Medicare rebates. So now that you can get uh, a rebate from Medicare, 
to do it, it's going to be an incentive for a lot more companies to come into this area. And that's what's missing to bridge the gap between research in the university and actual delivery to the home. Um, so with Medicare on board, I think things are going to get get a lot a lot better um, in terms of bringing healthcare into the home. And it's going to be, I think, the early stages, the obvious first steps are those you know, teleconsultations, if it's by video call or, or whatever it might be, some sort of a telephone call even. Um, that's the start, but there's a lot more we can do. We have some sophisticated technologies that can actually record electrocardiograms with blood pressures and blood oxygen and all this stuff in the home. Uh, and, and the falls monitoring will tie into that as well. And in the distant future, as I say, uh, we probably will start to make them implantable. And this research is, is starting it's starting to gather momentum around the world at the moment where people are implanting all sorts of devices, strange and wonderful devices into the body uh, to monitor people's well-being in real time. Well, sounds pretty exciting, Stephen. I'm sure that we've, uh, we're looking forward to a future where people can feel you know, more comfortable in their home and, and more in control of their health, and I think your, your research is a big part of that. So thank you very much for uh, talking to us on Fuzzy Logic Pleasure. today. Yep, absolutely. Pleasure. Yep, no problem. Right, thanks, Stephen. See you, Jim. Bye. The time's 12.03 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 2 XFM Community Radio. It's time to have a chat with Emma. We haven't heard from you for a while, Em. What have you got for us today? Well, Brod, we've heard a lot in the news lately about our cattle industry with the uh, ban on live exports for a while. Um, and last week in Gothenburg, Sweden, an interdisciplinary group of 25 scientists met to discuss um, a new sort of concept for meat production rather than farming meat, growing it in a lab as cultured meat. Now, this idea has been out for a while, but many of the technology components that are required are now coming into place so they could realise this concept of cultured meat. So what they basically need is a cell source, a source of stem cells um, that is ethically sourced, um, and then they use these stem cells and uh, uh, use a method to turn them into muscle cells and then grow these cells in a lab to produce the meat. And so they've found ways to now um, ethically source those stem cells and turn them into muscle cells and also to get the nutrients. Um, And the best source, they think, to get these is to use a photosynthetic organism, something like blue-green algae. And why they want to do this is because meat production uh, produces a lot of greenhouse gases, it uses a lot of energy and water and land, things like that. And they've done a life cycle assessment of cultured meat and found that it actually vastly reduces greenhouse gas emissions at something like 4% of beef production for the same amount of meat. And also the energy and obviously land use is vastly reduced and water use is vastly reduced. But it also raises a lot of of issues as well uh, in terms of, you know, economies that are based on uh, farming meat um, and also whether people would be happy to to eat it. I I personally um, think it's it's a very interesting and uh, potentially great, great process um, because it does remove a lot of those environmental and ethical concerns around meat production. Um, But, yeah, I don't know what you guys think of this new advance. Well... Firstly, I'm a bit curious with the the signs here, Em. So you're saying saying we take blue-green algae cells, so you're taking plant cells and turning them into meat. Yeah, well, they basically... So basically they just use the blue-green algae as a source of the nutrients. So they get the blue-green algae to turn sunlight and carbon dioxide into nutrients, and then um, they take those nutrients 
and provide them in, in sort of a nutrient gel to the muscle stem cells and then those cells can reproduce um, and divide and turn basically turn into blocks of, of meat. I'm wondering <laughs> if they could use this technology to grow muscles for people to actually put in people. That would be cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit easier to do this than it is to grow like an organ, like a liver or something, but they are... Scientists are also working on being able to grow organs in, in a lab from stem cells as well. So I think it's similar uh, technology, but it's a very sort of interdisciplinary um, project. The people in the conference were scientists um, with specialties in tissue engineering, stem cells and food technology, environmental scientists, and also, also ethicists and social scientists and economists, because this is something that if it, if it came into production, would sort of have pretty far-reaching consequences. I must admit, the first time I heard lab meat, I thought you were talking about Labrador meat. I wasn't so keen, but <laughs> now it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I wish I knew more about the technology, but um, yes, yeah, it's, it's something that uh, they would like to see attract more funding. Yeah. So are we growing slabs of meat here, or can you actually pick the cut like, you know, oh, I'd really like a, um, a, a, yeah, a ribeye steak or a, uh, you know, a bit of... Is it, is it chicken and beef? Can we even uh, choose I, that? Yeah, I think... Um, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure about the level of detail you can you can go in uh, selecting the types of meat. I think um, working on making it tender and you know nice to eat is something that they're working on in this research as well. Uh, but yeah, I think it all depends on the type of uh, stem cells and how that what the process they use to turn them into different sorts of muscle, um, and then the process they use to then grow the cells. Um, so all of this stuff is still in development, I guess. Yeah, because, yeah, I can just imagine, like, when you're just growing off a cell like that, I can't imagine developing, you know, into the shapes and the, the textures that certain to. meat cuts <laughs> have, yeah. But, I mean, I can certainly see it being fine for McNuggets or something like that yeah. instead, you know, just growing McNugget-shaped piles <laughs> of meat. Yeah, yeah, well, I do know, um, you know, uh, that there's a difference, for example, between eating mutton and lamb, and it's still the mm. same animal, but it's to do with the age of the animal and how much the muscle's been used. So I guess that's something we'd have to get get used to, the fact that these muscles hadn't been in an animal and been used, and they might be a little bit different to, to what uh, we're used to. Mm. Yeah, I guess this is all things we'll have to see in the future if uh, this research can get more funding. Have they done any taste tests yet? Mm. Uh, to be honest, this article doesn't talk about it. I think um, some other articles were talking about sort of the texture and quality, and so yeah. I think they are getting to the stage where they can, can try it, and I think the scientists thought it was thought it was great, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure about how far it's really gone yet. Okay. <laughs> Algae-flavoured meat. Yeah, just mm. mm. feels very odd, very odd. <laughs> Hmm, <laughs> some interesting stuff there, Em. Look, I, I don't can't see it um you know, finding its way to Michelin Starbase restaurants, but yeah, maybe in the near future to solve poverty problems or something like that could be a good way of using it. Yeah, well it's definitely you know, it seems like it could be an alternative um in some situations. Especially in yeah. countries that don't have agricultural areas like Singapore, mm. for example. You know, they can they could theoretically be growing meat five stories up in an apartment building if they wanted. Uh which would <laughs> be different. So right, you can have your veggie garden out the back in the meat meat garden. Oh dear, this is all getting a bit weird. Um but, uh, look, let's move from the kitchen now to the rest of the house, Jen, mm. and um, talk about how dangerous it can be. Yes, um, I'm going to talk about some research I've, I've, I've noted on DIY home renovations. Uh, but first, I'd like to tell a little bit of a story from my younger, more carefree days. Uh, when I was 16, I was invited to probably one of the oddest parties I've ever been invited to. I've 
I've been invited to many types of parties, but this one was a home destruction party because one of my friends who was about 20 had bought this house and uh, she wanted to knock it down and, and build a new house. So she invited a bunch of us over basically to, you know, draw on the walls, bash holes in them, break windows, etc. Fun stuff. It was all legal and it was all fun because she was going to destroy the house anyway. That's right. Amaz- um, amazing stress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never wielded so a sledgehammer with so much joy. <laughs> and um, I was aware that alcohol affected 18-year-olds and hammers were probably a dangerous mix. Um, but one danger I certainly didn't <laughs> consider at the time was the possibility that this beaten-up house in Melbourne might actually contain asbestos. Because, you see, houses um, were built using asbestos right up and through until the 1990s. Um, and for those who aren't aware, asbestos is a collection of, of naturally occurring minerals, basically. So you can mine asbestos. It's not man-made. Um, but it was made into, into sheets at, at, at various times into construction sheets to make buildings. So it's actually been used um, ever since about 4,500 years ago when it was first used by people in Finland to strengthen pots and cooking utensils. So it's quite strong and people have known that for a while. And it was used to construct many buildings, as I said, right through to the 1990s. The problem with asbestos is that it's made up of these ridiculously tiny little splintery bits of mineral that can be as small as one millionth of a centimetre in width, which is about the size that it can get inside a human cell. And so when you're working with asbestos and you're cutting it and crashing through walls with a sledgehammer, you can actually end up breathing in those tiny particles. And that can actually result in really, really serious lung diseases because those particles are so small they can get lodged in your cells and actually get in the way of or disrupt your DNA and uh, interfere with proper cell division, and that can cause a lot of diseases. And one of those diseases is asbestosis, which is when the lungs become so scarred that they lose their flexibility and you can't breathe properly. But a much worse disease caused by asbestos is the most famous example, which is malignant mesothelioma, which I'll just call mesothelioma because that's its common name. And it's a very, very serious cancer of the outer lining of your lungs. It's very serious in that the five-year survival rate, which means the number of people that will survive five years from when they're diagnosed, is only about 10%. So it's a pretty serious disease to have. Because of that, the use of asbestos was banned in Australia in 1991. However, houses that are around and that were built between 1960 and about 1990 still contain an awful lot of asbestos. In fact, houses built back as far as 1920. And um, we've seen two waves of asbestos-related illnesses. The first wave happened in miners and millers and transport workers who originally mined this asbestos from the ground. But the second was in workers who used the asbestos products, like tradies and people who were building houses and that sort of thing. But this research coming out of the University of Western Australia has looked at all of the cases of mesothelioma, this cancer, that have occurred between 1960 and 2008, and they've found that there's now a very frightening third wave of asbestos illness going on. And what they think is happening is that people are renovating their houses, you know, they're watching the renovators and they're watching the block and they're getting all inspired, and they're renovating their houses without taking into account that there might be asbestos in the floors, in the roofs, in the walls, and ending up getting themselves pretty sick, which is very unfortunate. And they actually examined all cases of this cancer between 1960 and 2008, and found that for women in particular, because women are apparently into DIY these days, the rate of disease from uh, home renovation that people were getting went up from 5% to 35% of all these cancers. So that's a huge increase Mm. in the number of people that are getting sick with this cancer from asbestos. So... 
the, the concern is that young people in particular who weren't around when asbestos was a really big issue in the 80s in particular in the 90s just aren't aware of the danger they're putting themselves in and that even a weekend or a few weeks of exposure, you know, if you're living in the house that you're renovating or if you're knocking down walls without a mask on, can end up getting you really sick. So that's what they're really concerned about at the moment. Is there a way we can actually tell... Uh, whether there's asbestos in the materials in the house or anything like that? Uh, well, the uh, researchers did uh, look first off at whether or not people thought they could recognise uh, whether, when they were seeing asbestos with mm. their own eyes. And what they found that was really concerning was that most of the tradies they talked to even admitted they weren't sure they could recognise it. Mm. So there's a couple of ways people can recognise it. I mean, some people can recognise it by sight. Then there's also, uh, it'll typically be labelled because sheeting that's behind painted walls will often say, uh, you know, asbestos or CSR was the company that made it. So often <laughs> it says CSR asbestos. But unfortunately, the only thing you can do to be safe is actually contact uh, somebody who's a specialist in asbestos uh, detection. And you can also contact councils and talk to them about the building permits from when the house was built and find out whether or not asbestos was part of the construction. But people sort of aren't, uh, aren't recommended to just go bashing around the house without checking mm. with somebody first. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's the problem is awareness, uh, have they thought about something they could do to make people more young people more aware of this issue uh well there has been discussion about the companies uh that made the asbestos because they've been held responsible in a lot of legal uh cases around around this issue and and whether or not they warned people in time that they were aware that there was a problem and one of the things that's been put on the companies in australia for example james hardy is one is that they have created websites that talk to people on this issue you know and if people know to look that up the information is there. But, of course, if you're not aware, you don't know to look it up. And, yeah, mm. so the question is how do we get people to look? Because you can have every website in the world, but if no one knows to write it into Google, then they're not going to mm. find it. So <laughs> yeah. uh, the scientists are pushing for, for people to be almost forcibly made aware, uh, even if it's just through the permits that they have to ask for mm. from councils to make sure that they, they have to look at this issue. Mm. Mm. And I guess, unfortunately, it's a disease that you know can strike years and years after exposure and uh yeah it's it's hard for people to know where you know the problem problem started and uh then to get treatment it sounds like it's a really horrible disease why is it so uh terrible is there something that's going on in research that can maybe you know, help these young people? Yeah, well, the big question at the moment um, that's interesting that they still haven't solved is why exactly it is that asbestos causes cancer. And the, and the things I said before about asbestos being small enough to get inside cells is the leading theory because there was some research done quite a while ago now, several decades ago, that found that it wasn't a chemical effect. It wasn't sort of... The, uh, the chemical that is asbestos getting into your DNA and changing it. They think it's a physical effect, that it sort of literally cuts up your DNA, um, which is one of the reasons it makes it so difficult to treat mm. because you can't get those bits and pieces out in the same way that, say, chemo can kill a bad cell. The asbestos is sort of stuck, and the only way to get rid of it is to rip out the lining of your lungs, which is not always an no, effective not an treatment. Ideal uh, people can be treated for it, and people, people have survived it. Those 10%, for example... Um, you know, have that five years that they'll survive, and some people have survived it very long term. But as you say, it does often uh, manifest. It turns up many, many years after people have been exposed mm. to asbestos, and it's expected that up to 18,000 Australians will have died from uh, malignant mesothelioma by 2020. Wow. wow. Mm. And I think the biggest concern now is the, the modern asbestos, which is the carbon nanotubes that people are worried that that's going to have a, a similar effect because of the physical nature of it. Because, mm. um, I mean, of course, carbon 
carbon in itself isn't necessarily bad for you. But in the, the small nanotube form, which is similar to the asbestos fibres, there's a big concerns about that too. Yeah, there's this very interesting question of, you know, we've had a lot of issues um, and a lot of regulation around chemical safety for a very long time. And, and, and government regulations are doing a good job of, of controlling chemical effects. But this kind of question of where the chemical meets the physical and that these, these things are so small that they mm. can have an impact at a physical level is a whole mm. new area of, of interest. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that it's, yes, this naturally occurring product and it's having such a different effect on on our body to produce cancer than uh, some chemicals do. So yeah, we are you know concerned about chemicals and making sure they're safe. But we tend to think of naturally occurring products as somehow uh, somehow safer or things that um, are, are physical are not going to have that same effect. So it's, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, and in fact, um, this stuff, uh, asbestos, can you know cause such a, dr- a dramatic problem that they actually closed down a town in Western Australia that used to be used for mining asbestos, decommissioned it, which means took it off all the maps, took away all the government services and said, this is not going to be a town anymore. <laughs> it doesn't which exist. Is, uh, quite a dramatic thing to do. There are still six people that, that are choosing to live there. No one's going to kick them off the land, but wow. all of the government services and that have been removed because the government's that concerned by... Um, by the leftover asbestos from mining there, you know, years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, some very definite concerns there about asbestos. And I suppose if people are going to do their DIY, you know, they, they do have to do their own research now. Yeah, definitely not putting you off your DIY, but just uh, just have a second thought and, you know, talk to a council or talk to yeah. talk to someone, look people up and uh, just check that you haven't mm. got asbestos in your Yeah. Because there are safe ways to remove it. You're not stuck with it, but <laughs> you just need to know that it's there. Yeah, you can't just act on that impulse from your midweek TV. Can't have a home <laughs> destruction party after watching the block. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, the time is uh, 24 minutes past 12 and you're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM. And, uh, M, we were chatting earlier about, um, you know, how important company is to keep people happy and, and healthy and all that, and you've got some science to back it up for us. Yeah, so a study um, that's been just published in Cell Metabolism has found the powerful effect that animal social and physical environments can have on their metabolism, among other things. So um, these researchers have been uh, looking at mice and normal lab mice live a fairly couch potato existence where they uh, live with sort of limited company and have a lot of food and water access constantly. Um, And what they've found is that if they put these mice into environments where there's lots of other mice so it's more sort of socially engaged and they give them lots of activities um, and still that sort of constant food that they actually started to lose a lot of weight even though that they were eating more and what they discovered was that the uh, percentage of this thing called brown fat that they had as opposed to white fat had increased dramatically so this thing called brown fat is actually uh energy burning and it uh, produces a lot of heat rather than the energy storing uh, fat cells, the white fat. Um, And this is sort of following on from their other research that have found that these sort of enriched environments has profound and beneficial effects on uh, reducing cancer rates um, and also improving their mental health. So uh, increased learning and memory and improved uh, sort of neural growth. And what I find really interesting is that all of this has been linked to this uh, one growth factor in the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And so this neurotrophic factor um, sort of has a, a very causal effect on growing these neurons and improving the brain. 
But it's also interestingly been linked to this sort of uh, increase in the ratio of brown fat and the reduction in cancer rates because not only these mice that were in the socially enriched environments, uh, they had an increase in BDNF and also these sort of other, uh, other physical benefits. But animals that were made to produce more of this BDNF in their brains um, even if they weren't in an enriched environment, just uh, with other techniques, just to put, um, inject them with this BDNF, they also showed the increase in brown fat and weight loss um, observed with those mice in the enriched environment. So it's, it's very interesting, this uh, sort of growing factor in the brain seems to have a multitude of benefits. Um, and so what the researchers are now saying is that uh, potentially our sort of sedentary lifestyles, but also our lifestyles where we're becoming uh, more socially engaged over computers rather than face-to-face um, may explain part of the obesity epidemic we now face and may have sort of uh, consequences for our mental and physical health. Um, so wait, does this mean if I become like a hyper-social butterfly, I can eat whatever I want? Uh, I don't know that it goes quite that far. You know, this is just a study in this group of mice. But they do say that um, they think that it could potentially be a very powerful way to, yeah, increase your level of this energy-burning brown fat by uh, being more socially engaged and active. Brown fat's an interesting thing because, you know, I don't know if there's any, any mothers out there or people around babies listening, but you'll notice, I hope your baby never gets cold, but if your baby you ever think might be cold, they don't actually shiver because they have so much of this brown fat, particularly in their liver, that produces a lot of heat and keeps them warm, so they don't really shiver. Um, so brown fat does burn an awful lot of energy, so yeah. it is cool to have a is, lot more. Is that that baby fat we see in their, their pot bellies, or is that just <laughs> No, that's just it? fat. Yeah. That's just fat. But okay. um, this, yeah, brown fat, it doesn't tend to grow so much in uh, in big lumps, like like normal fat does. Uh, what it does is it's little tiny streaks in all in your muscles and in your lungs, uh, sorry, your lungs, your liver, um, and just burns a whole bunch of uh, energy. So yeah. it's pretty cool. And it's, yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, scientists have known that babies have this type of fat for a long time. Um, and they've only just sort of realised recently that adults do retain some active brown fat and that that can be, that can be increased um, if they're exposed to very cold temperatures so to try and keep them warm. But it's actually very hard to increase your percentage of brown fat this way. You have to keep yourself very cold for a long period of time. But what they're suggesting from this new study is that maybe a more engaging environment is a more effective path to uh, increasing (laughs) and maybe keep you warm as well that sounds like a much better solution actually going out and doing stuff rather than Mm. sitting at home without a heater in a Canberra winter (laughs) much rather go to a nightclub than sit outside you know in the cold just just to make myself lose weight something I love though is that uh, the last line of this Science Daily um, report that I was looking up said that uh, During who was one of the researchers says that as online networking and social media have replace more dynamic face-to-face social interactions um you know this this could be a problem based on their research and then the line underneath this says 
recommend this story on Facebook or Twitter <laughs> and Google One. <laughs> so you can uh, sit on your computer and send this to your friends. So there is quite that, a glorious irony in that. Yeah, I found that quite ironic. I just thought I'd share that. Speaking of which, if you enjoyed today's episode, head to Facebook and type in Fuzzy Logic and you can like our Fuzzy Logic Facebook page. But you have to go out afterwards. Promise us that. And um, <laughs> then you can enjoy it. But in all seriousness, do check it out. You can uh, get updates on the shows and find out what's going on before it actually happens. And if you did enjoy today's show, you can also download the podcast. Just go to iTunes and type in Fuzzy Logic, or you can head to Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com and do it all manually from there. Uh, to finish off this week, I just want to highlight a couple of science events that are coming up this week. Uh, down at the Australian National University, Dr Tamara Davis will be presenting a public lecture entitled Cosmological Confusion, revealing common misconceptions about the Big Bang, the expansion of the universe and cosmic horizons. Uh, Dr Davis will be talking about the dark side of the universe that we don't usually see and the fact that everything we thought we knew actually only makes up 5% of the universe. Dark matter and dark energy are what make up the rest. She will also discuss what we can hope to learn by studying these wild and wonderful phenomena. This lecture is part of the Australian Institute of Physics Women in Physics lecture series and it's on this Thursday at 5.30pm in the Leonard Huxley Theatre down at the ANU. Also this week is an amazing science show from Dr Peter Wuthers called Just Add Water. Now, I've heard some amazing reviews of Dr Wuthers uh, in previous things. And, uh, yes, I've... apparently there's uh, quite a performance going to go on. Mm, it's supposed to be pretty amazing, so I really recommend you head down there. Um, Dr Wuthers is Director of Studies in Chemistry at St Catherine's College, Cambridge, and in this show he will explore some of the surprising properties and reactions of water. You know, you thought you knew water. Well, wait until you see this. He's going to answer the question such as how can a drop of water start a fire or cause an explosion and why can't you boil an egg on Mount Everest? So head along to find out the answers to these questions and even more. There's a few sessions to catch Dr Wuthers. He's on this Friday, the 16th September at 7pm and also on Saturday at 1pm and 4.30. Head to the Arthur Hambly Lecture Theatre down near the chemistry buildings there to catch this show. If you want more details on both these events, check out billboard.anu.edu.au. Well, that brings us to the end of another Fuzzologic show for this week. Thanks very much for coming in, Em. Oh, no worries. Good to be here, Brod. And thank you, Jen. No worries. Thanks for having me. And also a big thank you to uh, Dr. Stephen Redmond uh, for giving us his time this morning and talking about his new technology to help stop the elderly falling over. Um, it's been a fantastic show today. and I hope you've enjoyed it too. Make sure you tune in next week, same time, 11.30am, for some more science on a Sunday.